Amen. Are you all awake? We're good? Awesome. So open up your Bible. Song of Solomon chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 8. If you're new with us and you don't know what Song of Solomon is, um, it is one of the most unique books in the entire Bible because it is a love poem slash song um, that is very intimate. It is the story um, of King Solomon and his love relationship with his bride. And uh, now you all know Song of Solomon had like, I don't know, a thousand and, or yeah, a thousand wives, technically 700 wives and 300 concubines. The guy was a womanizer. And, but before all of that stuff, uh, Song of Solomon wrote this song. He had 1,005 songs. And this song in Solomon, Song of Solomon 1 1 is called the Song of of songs. Of all the songs he wrote, this is the most beautiful, it's the most compelling. And so you're jumping into, um, we'll say, the third verse, if you will, of this really beautiful, compelling song. And uh, what's happening here is that we find this couple, and the book brings them from the point of dating to engagement to the wedding day to the wedding night to conflict, even to, towards the, we'll say, the middle end of their marriage, where they leave a season of legacy for those who are younger than them. And so what we're doing right now is we're picking up in a place in Song of Solomon um, where the couple is betrothed, they're engaged, and they're inching closer toward marriage. And as they're getting closer toward marriage, you start to see all of this affection and this romance and this love that are all bound up in this couple. Now, what I want to do is take you back in time to December of 2001. Um, I shared with you that my wife and I were introduced under very strange circumstances. Um, the comments were, Michael, I would like you to meet your future um, wife, Brianne. Brianne, I'd like you to meet your future husband, Michael. And she proceeded to turn away and walk away after a polite hello and then did not talk to me for an entire semester and shunned me. My relationship with her during that semester, Brianne, would you say was a little rocky? Yeah, basically. So I would see her. I would say hi. She would barely speak to me. She would avoid me. If she saw me, she'd go the other direction. I'd just say she was running away from the inevitability of love. Um, but uh, I was frustrated with her immensely. So fast forward to December. We've known each other for about a semester, and I'm at home um, in Detroit, Michigan, sitting on my family's computer. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And you remember AOL and some messenger? Remember that? AIM, right? Princess Breeze 17. <laughs> it was awesome. And I thought that was a little pretentious until she told me that her dad gave her that name, and then it became pretty adorable and cute. But Princess Bree 17. And uh, let's just say we do not have a, an instant messenger relationship, let alone a talking relationship. So um, even to the point one time where um, the four people we were friends with primarily, they were both dating, and we would go out, and she would make sure that, her, that I would, was not allowed to sit next to her. So there'd be three seats and three seats, and we would be on the opposite ends of the corners because she just would not sit next to me. I'm like, at some point, I'm thinking, this girl's crazy. So anyways, we are, I'm on my computer, and I'm sitting there, and AIM, Instant Messenger, it's up, and I hear, bling, bling, uh, and I see Princess Bree 17. And she says something, I forget what it was, I think it was, hey, what are you up to? And I was like, she speaks? Like, <laughs> I was, I was completely taken back, and then she was gone. And I'm like, what is this, right? And, and in the back of my brain, I'm thinking, okay, I'm getting to know this girl. She's really, really cute. Everybody speaks really highly of her, but she treats me like a piece of junk. I can't stand this. So my, my brain is like, oh, what is happening? And then I think, Brian, was it the next night? It was sometime in the next day or two. I'm on Instant Messenger, and Princess Bree 17, blah, blah, right? She's like, hey. And I'm like, she speaketh. And my heart 
flutters, right? And I'm like, what is that? Where did that come from? What is going on? You know, like, this is not right. Like, this is the girl that I'm not speaking with right now because she won't speak to me and I'm not going to bend first. And, and so I think it was like a two-sentence like, conversation. And this was just reverberating in my brain all throughout Christmas break. Well, fast forward a couple weeks, and, and I'll tell you the story privately some other time, but the f- five people in a small little Saturn decide to skip the first week or two of school and drive to Florida. Why? Feels right. So we're in a car driving from Chicago to Florida in the middle of winter in a small little Saturn, five of us with a bunch of luggage, and I find myself in the back seat, back uh, driver's seat, and she is in the back middle seat. And her, she's kind of falling asleep, it's late at night, her head, whatever, and I find my heart is beating fast, and I'm like, what is going on inside of my body right now? And before that, we had actually, I don't know if you remember this, but um, the first like two hours of the trip, we just kept bickering back and forth and bickering, and then finally I was like, done, I wasn't even talking to you, and finally we end up in the back seat, and then my heart is fluttering. I'm like, how do I go from anger to my heart fluttering? This isn't even making sense. Uh, even to the point where like her hair, and I'm like, she smells good. Why do I care how she smells? This is crazy. So we start dating. Sally leaves the room, and uh, mom-in-law, and I'm like, I want to kiss her. Like, what is going on inside of me? Like, I know what's going on inside of me, but like every, everything is counterintuitive, and I'm like, what, what, is, what is happening right now? Um, when we were dating, she would send me packages in the, in the mail regularly. We um, were separated for two summers. Separate doesn't make it sound like this, like, devastating. She was in Colorado, and I was in Missouri, but she was in the mountains, and she had no cell phone reception. And so um, every, I'd say a couple times a week, I would get these packages in the mail. And uh, one of these, she knows I love O's, and so she'd send these packages. I, I, I got, like, big balls, and she'd write me an entire letter on a rubber ball and put a stamp on it. And the weirdest things would come in the mail and the family I was living with thought I was crazy. I want you to notice I did eat the O's, but I kept the box because you can't not eat O's. Um, But like I would find myself disappointed. Every day the mail would come, I'd be like, and then when something wouldn't come in the mail, I'd be like, oh, now there's there's a whole bin in my office, which is about 10% of all of the stuff that she sent me when we were engaged. And uh, it was just this constant like barrage. But every time they came, I'd be like, and, and my heart would just flutter. Uh, there was a point when we were dating when she was considering breaking up with me. And um, my, it was about three days long, and my, I was grief-stricken. I mean, I was sick to my stomach. I couldn't eat. And uh, it is amazing the power that a woman can have on a man, let alone ladies. You know what I'm talking about, because it's not like just guys are the ones that go through this. Moments before we were married, I mean, I'm standing, literally, I am like, on, like right here. I got married right here. And uh, I see her, and I could have run a marathon with the amount of adrenaline going through my body. Uh, I wasn't nervous. Like, I had no thoughts of, is this going to work out? I was just thinking to myself, I love this woman. And uh, let, me, let me tell you what I was. I was what Song of Solomon 2.5 calls lovesick. Here, here's what the woman says. She says to her man, sustain me with raisins. I know. It's an aphrodisiac. It's weird, but like it's, that's what it is, right? She's like, I want to give you my body. My dote is the Hebrew word, okay? Refresh me with apples. Another aphrodisiac, probably pomegranates. For she says, for I am sick with love. Isn't that cool? Some of you are like, yeah, I've been there, done that. I'm over that. What I love about this is that God has hardwired into the human condition hormones that create these responses. I don't know if you know this. This is, this is crazy stuff. That this isn't just some kind of accident, right? 
And so what we've learned is that there are, I mean, multiple, multiple hormones that affect different stages of relationship. I want to tell you about a few of them. One of them is just this initial stage of desire or sexual desire. And so anybody who goes through adolescence has a rush of testosterone through their body. And what this does is it, is it creates sexual desire. And so what you find initially is that these hormones rush through your body and they create necessarily in you the desire to give yourself sexually to another person. Um, and God hardwired into the human condition these hormones so that we would want to physically give ourselves to somebody else. Now, um, these hormones are incredibly powerful. And if you see any teenager who's just figuring these hormones out, right, what do they become? Imbeciles, making ridiculous decisions. Why? We've all been there, right? I mean, some of you are still imbeciles and you just haven't got over this stage, but still. It, it overwhelms your body and it makes you want things that you never previously wanted. And so this is good, and it is natural, and it's made and hardwired into the very rhythm of our bodies. It's crazy. But there's this second stage that goes beyond desire. Desire is what physically compels you to another person to want to give your um, body to them. But there's a second stage called attraction. And this is a cocktail of powerful, powerful hormones that leave you feeling lovesick or sick with love or just you become like a sick zombie and uh, there's a couple of these hormones of which maybe you're familiar with them generally speaking but they actually have um, physical emotional um, tangible results between two people um, one of these is dopamine this is a pleasure um, that you experience very similar to cocaine cocaine puts out extreme amounts of dopamine and this plays a major role in bonding is that an interesting when drug addicts feel very bonded to the drug because rather Rather than the dopamine being released about and connecting you and bonding you to a person, it bonds you to the substance. It's a very interesting, powerful thing. Serotonin, it cultivates obsessive behavior, right? I remember um, one day we were um, fighting about something at Moody Bible Institute, and I knew that she was coming out of class at a certain time. And I remember just obsessing. I could not get it off of my brain, and it was just over and over. And I looked out the window, and I was just waiting for her to come out, just watching. And I was like, weird. I'm like, what am I, a stalker? This is so weird. But like, this is what some of these hormones, yeah, Brian's like, yes, you were a stalker. That was very strange. Um, <laughs> But this is what some of these hormones do. And they, in, the, in the period of attraction, they rush through your body. And so the actual physical presence of the person you're attracted to causes your brain to release these chemicals. And the third one is adrenaline, which is increased heart rate and sweatiness. And that's why you see that girl and you're like, you start sweating and you get pit stains and like the mustache of like sweat that I get all the time. And there's something about all of these chemicals that when you're in the presence of the other person, they all rush. And then you throw testosterone on top of that and you get this chemical mix of like craziness, right? You remember this? Remember this? Some of you are like, I have no recollection of these events. <laughs> One poet wrote, love makes clocks worthless and calendars deceiving. I remember being engaged. I hated engagement. It was discontent with itself. Why should I be content with it? You know, it's like, I just wanted it to be done. It was the longest nine months of my entire life. Second to that was pregnancy. And uh, it was just so, it was so difficult. <laughs> The third stage is attachment. So what actually what chemically happens is these hormones, the longer you're around this person, they begin to subside. And there's a new set of hormones that kick in that create strong, strong bonds of attachment. Isn't God, isn't he just sort of a genius? That you go through these phases of hormones. I want to talk about um, one of these hormones in, in particular for attachment. 
Uh, you, many of you have heard of this, it's oxytocin. It's released in the body at certain periods. Um, particularly for women, it's released um, in sexual activity, it's released in the moment of orgasm, it's released during childbirth, it's released during breastfeeding. And what oxytocin does is it builds powerful chemical bonds between a person and the object. Isn't that interesting? And so even as, even as a couple begins cuddling and kissing and touching, oxytocin begins to be released. And so we're not created just to be sexual haphazardly. We're actually created that even as we are bonded and drawn to these, these other people through testosterone and dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline, then God starts releasing, uh, creating into our rhythm that we would release oxytocin, which would bind us chemically to these, to these people. Um, Brianne and I actually, um, when we were youth, um, when I was a youth pastor and worked with college students primarily, we could tell you, we could pinpoint when a girl started having sex with a guy with almost certain accuracy. And we'll tell you why. Because she became obsessive and irrational. And there is something powerful that when a woman crossed this line, it changed her entire chemical makeup and then her behavior. And we could watch this happen. Everything in her relationship toward the guy would start to change. Uh, researchers at Claremont um, University, they gave doses of oxytocin um, and a placebo to volunteers. I want you to catch this. Um, the people who were given the actual hormone um, were put in positions where they gave 80% more money away to homeless people. So they did this research, they sent them out to the city, and they said, we want you to think about being generous. And so they sent them out, and those who had oxytocin were 80% more generous than those who had the placebo. It has biological um, impacts and repercussions in our body. And what I love about the, all this study and all this science is that God is an absolute genius. He knew what would draw us to one another, but he also knew what would sustain us. And so oxytocin is responsible for loyalty and for, for deep, deep emotional bonding. Here's an interesting, uh, I would just say, concept for you to consider. Um, many researchers, they'll, they'll view the attachment form as behavioral addiction. Here's what, here's what researchers have said. They said that, um, your relationship to another person, it's a chemical addiction. You are bonded to them, you are attracted to them, and that they are your functional drug. And that when you're around them, you're continually feeding the drug. And so many researchers have actually seen relationships as functional drug addiction because the person is having the same effects in you but to different degrees that many drugs actually have on you. Isn't that an interesting idea? That you are bonded to your spouse or to your love or to your significant other in the same way that a drug addict gets bonded to the drug and that it's all the same chemicals but in different and we'll say more healthy proportions. Michael, why are you talking about chemicals? This is, this is preaching, right? For three weeks we've been talking about the lovesick phase and uh, I've waited to not tell you this until now but some of you may be left with the impression that God's desire is that I would be in the lovesick phase all the time. And if I've been married for five or 10 or 50 years and I'm not feeling like I'm gonna puke every time I'm around this person, that like something is wrong with me. And what I actually wanna do is I wanna come back to that, that sentiment and just say, there's actually something really healthy about not being lovesick all the time. Because again, lovesickness makes you do really, really dumb things a lot of the time. 
but what happens is it does draw you powerfully to somebody. Now, parents, grandparents, you may have um, a child who is just in the throes of romantic love. You need to understand that getting people to think rationally in this period is like sometimes like getting drug addicts to think rationally. That's how powerful some of these chemicals are. But what I want to do with you who have been married for a longer time is give you some encouragement. Because the point of Song of Solomon is not to show you how it's supposed to be all the time, but it's supposed to show you in this season what things are supposed to be like. But this is a reminder for everyone who has been married for a long time. Don't forget your first love. Sometimes marriage jades you and you have to go back and you have to remember the things that so intoxicated you and thrilled you with this man or this woman. And we look at Song of Solomon, unless some of you think I'm asking you to be like this 24-7, we're not. But you know what I would love? I'd love for men to remember what drew them in the first place and to be, we'll say, provoked to the levels of intentionality that you had when you were dating and engaged that stopped the day, the week, the month, or the year of your marriage. Amen, ladies? <laughs> yeah, no one's going to say that. That's fine. I understand. One of you. Now, let's uh, look in your notes. Uh, point number one, I want to teach you two skills. Uh, two skills that every, we'll say, uh, couple in the throes of love sickness intentionally figure out. But they are two skills that, we'll say, as time goes on, married couples, if you want to be happy, you are going to have to figure these two things out. Number one is the skill of affectionate pursuit. The skill of affectionate pursuit. So if you were dating, engaged, recently married, I would like to just tell you what every married person in this room wants to tell you. Um, the pursuit will slow down. Should it? I don't know, but it will. Almost inevitably, a single man who is pursuing you will not have the same energy and level of pursuit once you get married and once he starts working, once you have kids, this is an inevitable thing that begins to happen, but it does not mean it has to stay this way. This is a part of the rhythm, and then most dudes, we should get convicted. No, God has created me to be a lover, to be affectionate, to be a pursuer, so I need to get over my busyness, and I need to inject intentionality back into my, into my relationship. And so as we look at this, I want to just give you a few rules for young loves, okay? Here's just a couple of simple things for you. Um, when you look at older relationships, don't judge too quickly. Do not be so arrogant. You have no idea the hell or the heaven this couple has been through. Um, and so when you look at their current season, this is not an opportunity for you to look down on them and say, we're in the throes of love sickness. Now you're in the throes of a chemical addiction. That's what you're in the throes of, and they are in the throes of life. And so you don't judge too quickly when you look at other couples. Number two is don't be too arrogant. Don't be too arrogant because you have no idea once your chemicals change and new chemicals come into place, the new habits and patterns that you're going to exhibit personally. But number three is don't be discouraged because when you look at the marriages of those who are older than you and you don't want anything to do with that kind of marriage, here's what I want to tell you. The Word of God is a constant reminder that your parents' destiny does not need to be your destiny. Your parents' decisions do not need to be your decisions. Your grandparents' decisions, they don't need to be your decision. You have a will, and if you've trusted in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And you can create a very different future than the one you grew up under. And so this is where I want to just look at you and say, don't get too arrogant, but also don't give up hope. Because you have, by the power of God, the ability to do something different. Now, three rules for jaded lovers. Don't give up. Do not give up. The glory of God is at stake in your marriage. Do you want to give God glory in your marriage? And your obvious answer is yes. Then you cannot give up on pursuing 
with affection your spouse. Number two, do not undersell the power of God. And then number three, and this is probably the hardest one, be willing to be the only one. I cannot promise you that your spouse is going to respond to you. But what I can tell you is this, you have everything you need by the power of God to pursue with affection even somebody who won't respond to you. Be willing and be ready that you might be the only one. Now, Michael, let's get into the text. She, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. I want you to notice his pursuit. She is talking. Who is she talking to? It's a great question. We actually don't know. Is she talking to the daughters of Jerusalem? Is she talking to her family, her mother and her brothers? We really don't know, but she is going to be talking to a group of people, and she is going to be telling a story of what is happening. Here's what she says. The voice of my beloved, exclamation point. Do you hear excitement? Say yes. Yes. Behold, hark, look, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. I want you to notice his pursuit. Now, Solomon is a king. By the way, do kings ever just show up willy-nilly? No, they don't. There's a lot of intentionality that goes into the king's pursuit. Here's, here's what you need to know about this relationship. They have been separated, it appears, all winter long. Now, what happens when you have been separated from someone else? Your heart longs for them. Three months away from Brienne, um, the summer before we were married, was misery. I thought about her 24-7, days, well, I felt like there was like 72-hour days, right? And I'm like, I just want this summer to end so we can be together. And so you have this entire season of longing, of distance from each other. And she is waiting for springtime so that he will come. Now, when he comes as the king, likely there's a few things that are going to happen. It's going to require preparation, right? Because the king has an incredible amount of duties and responsibilities. And so if he's going to take a day or a week off to go pursue this girl, there's going to be a lot of intentionality here. It's going to require canceling high-priority meetings. It's going to require prep it's going to require time. It's going to require horses. It's going to require men. And so here's what we know. When the king comes in town, this isn't just like Solomon saying, I'm going to go off my own little private ride. People don't let the kings do that. This is Solomon pursuing her finally after an entire winter of being apart. And so she is super duper duper excited. But then in verse 9, I want you to notice his playfulness. He arrives. And here's what she says. My beloved is like a gazelle or like a young stag. A stag is a, a male deer. And behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. Okay, he's not a peeping Tom. He's not a creeper, okay? He's playful. And this playfulness is actually very clear to commentators and people who understand the original languages. He is very, very lighthearted in his approach. And he's like... Can you come out? Can you come out? And she has been waiting with anticipation. Now, does she know he's there? Yeah, she heard him coming over the mountains because the king is coming with his entourage. And there's just something I want you to catch about this couple. They're not jaded yet. And I want you to notice, we've seen so far how much affection that they've had for each other. And the results of affection are a couplefold. Number one, it's lightheartedness. I don't know if you know this. The results of affection are lightheartedness, playfulness, and reciprocated affection. Did you know that? Like, there is something about intentional, genuine affection that takes down your defense mechanisms and creates inside of you a light heart 
creates inside of you playfulness. And Solomon gets this. Solomon and her have been incredibly affectionate. They've been incredibly intentional. Now he shows up for this date, if you will, that they've been waiting for all winter long. And he is, um, yes, very playful. And he's popping through. And she says, quoting him, my beloved speaks to me. And here's what the man says. Arise, my love, my beautiful one and come away. In verse 13, he says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He is very soft with her, very affectionate, and he's basically, you get this imagery of like a young man who's like, let's go out into the wilderness and play. Now, uh, if you look at your text, it's not up on the screen, but I want to read to you what he says to her. In verse 11, he says, For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. What season is this? It's springtime. Spring is a season of love, and he's, he's using the current season to write her poetry, to speak tenderly to her. And you'll notice that his words to her are filled with such kind and gentle affection. And by the time we get to the end of this, you may be wondering, how should a woman respond who is given this much affection? We're going to get there. Notice his playfulness. Number four, notice their purity. He says, oh, my dove, a bird known for beauty and purity, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Here's what she's doing. She's sort of playing hard to get. Doves would hide in the crannies of the rock. And here's what's happening. She's not just throwing herself at this guy, like all of the virgins and the daughters of Jerusalem who would just throw their bodies at this man. What she's actually doing is she's playing reserved. And she, he's saying, you're like a dove who is hidden in the crannies and the clefts of the rock. It's hard to get at. And he's like, show me, show me something. Give me anything. Respond to me. And you feel, like palpably, you feel his desire for her. You feel that he wants to just be near her. I mean, this is that point of life's love sickness where he's like, I just want to hear your voice. Can I just see your face, right? That's all he wants to do. And there's something when you're in this season of a relationship that even just their voice is so powerful. Now, some of you, you're like, ah, my wife's voice annoys me. It didn't used to annoy you, okay? It used to draw you in. It used to be something you desired. And this is what happens with jaded love. Eventually, in jaded love, you forget the very compelling and beautiful things about that person. And I really believe that the Lord wants to take jaded love, and sometimes it just needs to be reignited, as we talked about last week. You need to be carbonated. You're like flat coke, and the Lord wants to bring some carbonation to this. Now, some people, commentators, are epically hilarious, okay? So commentators have read this, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 they're having sex right now. And I'm like, she's hiding from him. I don't understand how you're getting these interpretations. That's fine. And some, some of you will say, okay, all right, how far is too far? How far did they go? And here's the rule of the book. The body parts they describe are the body parts they explore. And so he says to her, not let me see you naked, right? Because that's going to come. He's going to get very, very clear about which part, body parts he wants to see. Right now, what does he want? Her face and her voice. I just want to see your face. I just want to hear your voice. Let me get to this first point here, which I want to just land with you and say, there's something you forget as you get jaded, as life happens, as you get busy, 
and it's the skill of affectionate pursuit. Everyone in this room, if you've been married for more than a year, you're likely very guilty. And the longer we get married, the longer we can postpone pursuit, regular intentionality, being in the presence of the one you love without distraction. But it's not just physically being in their presence. I want you to notice every time he's with her, he is affectionate with his touch. He's affectionate with his words. He's intentional about where he takes her. He is intentional about everything. Here's what I know, dudes. You might be like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. Your wife is sitting next to you, and she wants you to be more like Solomon. Hear me. Every woman, I, unless she is jaded and ticked, she wants you to be more like Solomon. And you might look at him and say, yeah, you don't understand my life. I'm telling you, Solomon understands women. And by the way, so does God. And God put this in here not to make you necessarily feel like a terrible husband, but God willing to inspire you to go back to that time when you intentionally pursued, when she just walked by and you touched her without intention of making love with her, when you just learned to use your words to build her up because you love her. And there's something in every woman that is dying for this. And here's what we'll probably just say, that the best relationships behind them is a man who is affectionate and is intentional. And every lady in this room is going to give you an amen. They're not going to say it because you're sitting next to her and she doesn't want to make you feel bad because she's nice and respectful. Right, ladies? Yep, good. Here's the second skill. The skill of cooperative defense. So when somebody comes onto your territory and you shoot them, is that defense or offense? Defense. Good, 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 good. They're on your territory. Now, if you go on their territory and you shoot them, is that defense or offense? Offense. There we go. Okay. Uh, I want you to notice this, right? Because the couple's posture is not, let's go after everything that might hypothetically threaten our relationship. Like, that's not what's happening. Okay. We're going to see a very different picture here. And I want to just turn, turn to verse 15 with me. I want you to just watch. It's one simple little verse, but there's so much under this verse. He looks at her and says, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. All right, 15 things you need to know about this one verse. Just kidding, there's only five. Number one, relationships are like vineyards. Vineyards are a lot of work. Anybody ever try to grow anything, let alone a vineyard? Right? It's really hard. Most everything I grow dies, and then my wife takes it over. Lots of work. Good soil, right nutrition. I mean, you miss the basics. What do you miss? the fruit, and life, right? And many of you are like, I don't need the basics, pursue, affection, blah, 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 blah. Welcome to a dead marriage. Huh, how's it going for you, right? These are the basics. And so you get this picture of a vineyard. I mean, things get off balance a little bit, things start dying. I think of it like a pool, because this is like real deal for me right now. We bought a home, and in this home is a pool, and this pool is an incredible amount of work. And three times a day right now, I have to go into my little filter and pull out all the leaves, because they're just falling off the trees and landing in my pool. Uh, I, what do you call the green stuff? Algae. It just starts growing for no reason whatsoever. It's like, we're going to grow here. How do you even grow in a chlorinated environment? I don't understand it, right? But it is amazing the amount of threats. I'm in the pool. And I'm like, it tastes like metal. How is there metal? Like, it tastes like a, a, a penny, you know? Like, yes, you know what a penny tastes like. Like, that weird flavor, right? 
And you're like, why is that flavor in the water, right? There's always something threatening the EQ and the balance of my pool. And then I'm like, why is the water going away? It evaporates. It needs constant attention 24-7. Otherwise, it's going to be completely useless. And you might say to me, get rid of the pool. And I would say to you, do you know how much quality time I spend with my kids in that stinking pool? Tons. I will, I will take that much effort and care to spend a half hour every other day with my kids in that pool and play. But here's the point. If I want the half hour of time with my kids, it takes many hours outside of that just to make sure that everything's functioning the way it's supposed to function. And that's what relationships are like. They're like vineyards. They're like pools. Number two, there is a threat to their vineyard. Hear me. The threat is foxes, not each other. Who's the threat? Foxes, not each other. So foxes, um, here's what would happen. Uh, springtime would come, blossoms would start to happen, but before the fruit would grow, the blossoms need to thrive. So these little foxes, little squirrely little guys, they get in there and they eat the blossoms, which make it impossible for fruit ever to grow. And so here's what a good man and a smart woman knows. Every relationship is threatened. We are threatened by multiple little annoying foxes. And these things, they're not eating the fruit, they're eating the blossoms, which are the requirement. It's the beautiful part. You're like, oh, it's a little blossom. They're eating the fun stuff now that is going to produce the fruit later. And here's what Solomon knows. You and I, girl, you and me, girl, we got to get to these foxes. We got to take care of this. And what's interesting is his date with her is to go catch foxes. Isn't that interesting? He's not just like, come away with me into the wilderness. Spring is here. What is his agenda? Let's catch foxes together. Isn't this just such a different perspective than when you just read this? You're like, oh, they're in love and they're making love. This is an intentional, godly man who with affection and kindness in his words and intentionality pursues this woman, invites her out. She does not just give her body to him, but she plays reserved as she is supposed to play because she's already preached to the daughters of Jerusalem, don't awaken love until it's time. And then he comes after her and says, look, if you and me, if we're going to make it, we need to be intentional. We need to do this thing right. Number three, there are multiple foxes and they're currently small. What happens to the foxes if you don't kill them now? They're gonna get big and they're gonna make more babies because that's what foxes do. And you know what's gonna to happen to your vineyard? There's gonna be nothing left. There will never be any fruit. And you, look at, you can look at everybody and say, look, we have vines, but if it doesn't bear fruit, then what's the point? And that's what most marriages are like. They're like vineyards with vines and it looks pretty in the early spring, but nothing grows when it's time for harvest. Why? Because you haven't taken care of the foxes. Number four. Notice the foxes. I mean, they are in the throes of lovesickness. The foxes, it's not like he was sitting there and he's like, oh, look, there's a fox. It just entered into our vineyard. The fox is already in the vineyard, meaning from the moment they're together, their vineyard already has foxes in it. Like, you don't need to wait. The foxes are here. Can I get an amen from everybody? They are ready to take your blossoms so that you can grow no fruit. They are ready and they're chomping at the bit. And then I think just the last thing part that I just love is that this game to catch the foxes is a part of his intentionality. This is his date. I really like this guy. Uh, there are two kinds of foxes. 
We call them external foxes and internal foxes. I'm not going to give you like a big marriage lesson, whatever. I'll just call it some things, but you and your spouse or your significant other, um, you need to sit down and say, what are the foxes that stand between us and fruitfulness as a couple? Um, here's a couple that I see regularly. A kid-centered home instead of a marriage-centered home uh, where the kids run everything and everything becomes subservient to the will of the children. I'll just say sickness. Um, you can't control this. Um, but oftentimes, physical sickness um, can be something that takes over a home and controls it, and you've got to figure out together, how do we deal with this? Really bad counsel. Um, there have been couples who have gotten terrible counsel, and this counsel has led them to do bad things with good intentions. Really, really bad counsel can be an external fox. Culture. All of the lies, all of the lies that we believe over and over and over and over and over, and over again, they affect, they're bad fox. We have to ask ourselves as a couple, what lies have we bought into from the pop culture machine so that we don't fall prey. Busyness, anyone else? Am I the only one? Like busyness is fundamentally, like, like three people are like, no, not me, not me. Yeah, yeah, I know, you're joking. But busyness is what stands between most people and affection and a godly marriage and love and romance. And I'll just say this external one, tech, anybody else? Technology? All right, good, enough said. Internal foxes, you all have them. I mean, the moment you start dating somebody, they come with a bunch of foxes all behind them, ready to eat at all of your blossoms and ready to take everything that you love down, okay? They may not know them, they try to hide them all, but they're there, right? And you're all like, no, not my love. Yes, your love has a bunch of foxes and he's not telling you about them. Maybe he doesn't even know them yet, but spiritual dryness. Something that will just steal the fruitfulness of your marriage. Bitterness, typically from pain and unmet expectations. You want to talk about something that will eat your blossoms and devour the fruit and prevent it from even growing? Bitterness. Fear. I would just say for most men, this is the number one inhibitor of male pursuit and leadership. Fear. Fear. For women, it's insecurity. Not always, but I would say from what I see most of the time, this is what drives most women to sin in, we'll just say, the only way that women can. Undealt with past. You've got to figure it out, though. I mean, these are just ideas to give you a catalyst to think and to understand what might be the foxes. But the moment you start dating, you need to figure out foxes because they're already eating your blossoms. And you may be asking, and I want to close with verses 16 and 17, how does she respond to this? I mean, this whole uh, set of verses is her telling this story of what happened with the guy and what he said to her to somebody else, maybe her friends, maybe her parents. Here's what she says. Look at verse 16. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies. Again, people have tried to find sexual inference here, and I just can't find it yet, and we'll get to this, but she goes on in verse 17. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. So this, these two verses have befuddled interpreters. Um, and yet, for most, I think, when you just look at the simple things, there's a few things you can know. Uh, number one, uh, what does she mean by turn? Does she mean turn to me, or does she mean turn away? And really, how you understand that one word determines what this whole thing means. And, uh, my personal conviction, just from reading this, I actually don't see any other way, is that she is looking at him and saying, turn and leave. Go away. Um, after their date and their intentionality, and here, here's why. 
She says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. When do, when do shadows flee? Nighttime. It's getting to be nighttime. And she says, look, it's getting to be nighttime. Uh, you need to turn, my beloved. And you need to be like a gazelle or a young stag. You need to go. You came in like a gazelle. You need to leave like a gazelle. And the reason you need to leave here, and she, she says, do it on the cleft mountains, the mountains of Bether, right? There's no place called the mountains of Bether. It's the mountains of separation. And so some people have said the mountains of separation are her breasts, and he wants her to climb whatever as a metaphor. It, it just does not seem to be that, and I'll give you one more reason why. But basically she says, look, we need to be separate. We need to go away. The wedding is coming in a couple chapters, Solomon. Relax, be patient, turn. It makes no sense that she would say, you're already with me, turn toward me. It makes more sense that she would say, turn and go the other direction. And you might be saying, ah, it's a little ethereal, but here's what happens. The very next verse, chapter 3, verse 1, she is dreaming about him. He is gone, and she has a dream that they are together. And so what seems to be happening in the flow here is that they're together. He takes her on this date. They're having intentionality and affection and pursuit, and they're defending together. They're not against each other. They're with each other against these little foxes, and nighttime is coming. And she says, it's time for you to leave. You need to turn, and you need to be like the studly stag that you are, and you need to go the opposite direction because I don't think I'm going to be able to say no to you if you stay here any longer. And so he leaves just like he came in on the mountains, but now he's running over the mountains of Bether, the mountains of separation. They're finally apart from each other. And the very next verse is her dreaming about being with him physically, which is a good, godly, God-ordained, hormonal desire that he has hardwired into this woman. I love this book. I love how pure it is. I love that at every point, you might think they're going to cross a line and they stop. She is hiding her body from him and just showing him enough. He is pursuing her with affection and intentionality. They're both calling out what is real and what is true. And we see in this that God reminds us in this story, look, this is love sickness. And if you've been married for a while, you're not going to be here the whole time. But dudes, I just want to look at you and say, figure this guy out. Because your wives are wanting Solomon. They want somebody who is affectionate, intentional, and will pursue them. And you might in your pride say, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. Then it's your loss. Because you have a beloved woman that God has given to you. And you have the opportunity to pursue her. This whole thing, we step back, it just shows you inside the heart of a woman. Because everything that is said, she's telling the story, and she's so excited about it. I'll just speak for myself. I want my wife to tell her family and friends how awesome I am and how excited she is to see me. But here's what I can tell you. If I don't figure out how to pursue her with intentionality and affection, that ain't going to happen. And so my encouragement to you guys as we get through this is pursue your wives. Be intentional with your wives. Should I say it again? Are we good? Have I said it enough times? Pursue your wives. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment I want to pray, and then Pastor Craig, again, is going to come up, and he's going to celebrate communion with us. And uh, I'll just set Pastor Craig up with this. Who cares if you have an amazing marriage and you don't have a relationship with God? So what we want to offer you today is counsel from God's Word about how to love a woman and how to love a man well, and more importantly, how to know Jesus Christ.